Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, This past week, or a couple weeks ago, Elle and I, uh, we were, my seven-year-old, we were getting ready for bed, and uh, I don't know if you've seen, if any of you have been subjected to torture, it's called the Lego Movie 2, and so we had just seen that movie, and uh, we were getting ready, and we were laying in the bed, and we'd kind of done our reading and our prayer, and so, you know, this is when profound thoughts start to kind of bubble up in the side of a seven-year-old's head, and she said, Daddy, I, I, I have this thing stuck inside my head. And if you happen to be so fortunate enough to watch Lego Movie 2, you're going to notice there's this song. This song's going to get stuck inside your, this song's going to get stuck inside, this song's going to get stuck inside your head. Right? And it's just like a song about getting stuck inside your head. And um, she was like, Daddy, there's a song stuck inside my head, and I can't get rid of it. And I was like, oh, baby, welcome to life, right? We've all experienced that. There's a word, it's called earwig, or in like academic, academic literature, it's called endomusia. It's this idea of music playing inside your head that's not actually playing around you. And it is one of the most annoying things ever. And she's like, Daddy, I don't want to know what it is. I want to know how to fix it. Like, how do I get this song out of my head? dad. And um, I said, well, sweetie, there's a couple different ways. Uh, One is to sing a song that's a little less sticky in your head. She was like, well, what if it gets stuck? And I'm like, well, that's why you sing one that's a little less sticky than the one currently inside your head. Had I'd actually known then, because I went and researched it, because that's what I do, um, that there's actually a couple other ways that, at least according to some of the early research around this phenomenon, that you can actually get rid of it. One is to sing the song completely. Um, to actually listen to the song, com- sing it completely. That usually brings closure. And then, surprisingly, another way is to chew gum, which actually um, your brain, for whatever reason, in the process of chewing gum, has trouble simultaneously kind of presenting music in your brain. And so, but it was interesting because that conversation I had with my little girl about how to get this thing out of her head that was stuck was basically the same conversation in a different form that I had with many of you following last week's message. If you're new here today or uh, you missed last week's message, we talked about this powerful realization, this powerful principle inside of this um, series called Mastermind, that the thoughts that you have, specifically the beliefs that you have, are shaping who you become. And I would encourage you, um, if you're new here The app, we have all of our previous messages. Last week's message is a message worth checking out. We we really kind of spent about 40 minutes unpacking this interesting form of thoughts that we have called our beliefs and how ultimately who you're becoming is being shaped by the beliefs that you have. And, And so what I heard last week out of that message was so many of you saying, okay, like my daughter, how? I got that there's thoughts and beliefs, and, and I walked away with the, the awareness of these things that are shaping my life, and how do I change them? 
And because I heard that enough, I actually went and modified the whole series. This week, I was going to kick off a series of weeks on different mind fields, different struggles we have, like anxiety and comparison and guilt, shame, um, negativity and criticism. And those are all going to be minefields that we'll kind of engage with leading up to Easter. But I actually, this week, out of so many of your responses, I went back and said, okay, let me hit pause on the series and let me talk to the how. Because the how is a really important question. And just like my daughter, I do think there's a way to transform your thought life. And that you and I, the same way that we can get a song out of our head, we can also start to work to get thoughts out of our mind as well. And start to transform the underlying beliefs that are shaping who we're becoming. And to do it, I actually want to go back to the same passage we looked at last week. Um, That's what I love about the Bible. I could preach and speak three or four weeks on the same passage and wouldn't exhaust the amount of wisdom and truth present But I thought, in fairness, since we started this conversation around this character named Gideon, and Gideon is a man who lived about 3,500 years ago. And Gideon, we joined him in his story in a book called Judges, in a period of history in Israel, after they've gone into the land that's known as Canaan. But before there's an official government structure, they're very... They're kind of in this interim period where it's very tribal. And the people who lead the nation bubble up are called judges. And so the book of Judges is kind of chronicles that period of history during Israel's time leading up to them forming uh, uh, what essentially will become a kingship and one of the most famous kings of David. But prior to that, this judges period was chaotic. And we talked about last week, just to re- recap it briefly, that they are a new nation surrounded by some of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. There were destructive forces. There were the Midianites who used what we called desert tanks, the camels. Camels were one of the most innovative technological warfare weapons at that time. And believe it or not, camels were used all the way up until the first, first war, World War I. Camels were instrumental in battles. And the Midianites kind of led out in that technological advance that that stuck around for thousands of years. Midianites would come in, they would ravage and kind of completely ransack and destroy villages, set on fire, kidnap and kill. It was a dark period. And Gideon, we find him in the beginning of Judges 6 and verse 11, that he's, he's a wimp. He's terrified. He's in a wine press and he's threshing wheat, which is um, even for those who weren't here last week, You don't thresh wheat in a wine press, and that's just not what you do. You thresh wheat in a threshing floor. And the fact that Gideon is hiding in this really inefficient place, threshing wheat, is to kind of sets the backdrop that this guy is a wimp. He's a coward. And yet what we saw last week of this principle is that by chapter 7, the wimp has become a warrior. The coward has become a commander. And the reason was because of his belief change. And so by going back to the same story, I want to highlight in this story some principles that are at work and at play that actually are underneath the surface of the story, but are present there helping Gideon shape and change the way he thinks. And so if you're here today and you left last week 
or maybe you weren't even here last week, but you understand the power of beliefs to shape your life because you've been stuck in a kind of this constant loop for decades or months or years around certain beliefs that you have of being unloved or a fear that you're always going to be alone, right? These underlying beliefs that shape you, that some that you were taught when you were little, some that you just happened to, to caught when you were little, of you're always going to be worthless, you're a nobody, or you're fat, and somehow that communicates a little bit less value to you. But whether you're here or not, I think we all know what it's like to have these beliefs that haunt us, that hold us back, and that hang us up. And so Gideon's story shows us how. The first, actually, and um, just as a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm going to fly through two chapters. This is why we have the message notes in the app. This is why we'll use it on the screen. Um, but I'm going to summarize sections of the story because we could literally, I'd be up here 10 minutes if I read chapter 6 and chapter 7 out loud to you. So I'll just highlight the verses because I encourage you to go back and read it and process through yourself. And I'll just kind of highlight the sections where some of these principles are at work. Uh, the first principle, this first essential practice that you have to do if you're going to start to transform your thoughts is actually tune into them in the first place. I don't want to assume that you know that. Mainly because 40% of the thoughts that you and I have over the course of everyday life has been documented in, in multiple, multiple research projects. We're not even cognizant of them. They have nothing to do with what we're immediately doing in our present. Our brain is always working even if we're not aware that it's working. There are thoughts and ideas that are constantly bouncing around our head. And the same way that my daughter experienced that song that was stuck inside of her mind, we have thoughts that are constantly stuck inside our head. And that we have to do the work of engaging and tuning into those thoughts. This is actually what we see God do for Gideon when God meets Gideon in chapter, in chapter 6 and verse 12 where Gideon's threshing and God shows up and says, What are you doing, mighty warrior? Which is a provoking thought, right? When he says mighty warrior, this is in kind of juxtaposition of a man hiding as a chicken from the enemy. And God steps in and says, oh, hey, mighty warrior. And he's like, no, everything about me right now is a wimp. And what God does is when he calls him mighty warrior, Gideon's a little offended by this. And he goes on to says, well, um, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies. Gideon actually has a series of pardon me's to him. And what he does in the course of this conversation, he's like, if the Lord is with us, then why is all this happening to us? And what's going on, and there's this conversation that unfolds, and what happens in 12, 13, 14, and 15 of those verses is essentially Gideon's presenting what somebody in psychology would call the cognitive triad. It's this kind of series of negative three ideas that come together that produce, oftentimes that produce depression and despair, and it's this idea that I am no good, that I'm worthless, that my world is bleak, and that my future is hopeless. That these three thoughts are ultimately what Gideon has underneath the surface. It's the beliefs that have led him to be present inside the wine press, terrified about the enemy that's lurking on the edges. These thoughts of I'm worthless and my world is bleak and that my future is hopeless is not just something that Gideon struggles with. It's something that we struggle with too. If you've ever found yourself in a marriage and you hear that, constant hum of this marriage is hopeless 
or that I'm hopeless, or the idea that the best in my life is behind me. That's, that's those powerful beliefs shaping your life. When I sit down with a couple and I hear this marriage is already doomed, oftentimes it is because they've determined it because of what they believe about it. That you have to first turn in and tune into the thought processes. This first step of identifying what's bouncing around up there is critical if you're actually going to transform what's up there. One of the things that I would do to encourage you just as a brief action step is to pay attention. When you have tension, when you find frustration, when, when you go through something or you walk away from a conversation and it seems to bother you more than it should have. It's something that I, I learned from another writer in the Bible, the psalmist, where they would ask the question, why are you so downcast, my soul? I walk away from situations and circumstances, and I say, why did that bother me so much? Why did their comment to me hurt me? Or why did their comment encourage me so much? This week, I mean, I had an insight about a thought process going on underneath the surface and a belief because I had a phone call with someone, and I'd ask for feedback on something, and they gave me some feedback, and it was like encouraging. And I walked away saying, why did that why did that affect me so much on the inside? I felt really encouraged. Normally, I would have just been like, oh, well, thank you. That was super helpful. But it was like I clung to it. I, like, held on to it. And I just paused enough to say, why? And what started bubbling up as I started tuning in and realizing, oh, because of some other things I was dealing with this past week, I needed some encouragement because I was starting to fear some other things that were creeping into my life. And so you want to pay attention to the tension. You want to ask the question why you respond the way you respond when you find yourself in those situations. And oftentimes, it will help you to uncover your thoughts. Because once you uncover your thoughts, you're in a position to actually move to this next step of not just tuning into it, but trading them out. And what Gideon does in this passage is demonstrate three different ways that you can trade out your thoughts. Some of them will be obvious, and some of them are a little bit more indirect but they're still equally as powerful. The first thing that we see Gideon do isn't as apparent on the surface because we're separated from this passage by 3,500 years. And so there's a cultural language difference. There's a religious difference. So it may not be as obvious when you first read through this, but if you notice at the end of in Judges 6, 18, after they've had this conversation that Gideon actually responds, and he says, Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Now, Gideon actually does this moment twice. He does it in this passage, and then he'll do it again in chapter 7 and verse 15. He'll, he'll do the same thing. It says that he will worship him. Now, these two different cultural ideas are rooted in... Um, the, the Jewish faith that Gideon has in that moment. And what Gideon is essentially trying to do is he's trying to offer a thanksgiving to God and to celebrate and to commemorate this faith moment, this, this act of this individual coming in to inspire and encourage and God stepping into his circumstances. And on the surface, you could read through that passage and not realize that you just watched a mechanism for transforming your thought life, and it's called thankfulness. Being thankful or grateful is a powerful way of shaping your thought life. 
In fact, this is something I watched my wife do recently with, uh, with our daughter. Um, I shared a couple weeks ago how this year um, she's had attention. We've had a little bit of a bullying situation. And my daughter, who's normally loved school, has said multiple times, I, I don't want to go to school tomorrow. She even got hurt earlier this week, and she was grateful for it, which is like the wrong kind of grateful. Because she was like, well, maybe that means I don't have to go to school tomorrow. And we're like, babe. And so Jenny is kind of putting her to bed that night, and she has this conversation with her um, that says, Ella, right now you're focusing on all the bad things at school, and it makes you not want to go there. But, honey, if you're willing to, like, change your focus, what you'll find is it won't be as bad as you currently think it is. And she's like, what do you mean? Because that's abstract for a seven-year-old. She's like, well, let me tell you, let's imagine we walk into a field. And before we walk into the field, I say, sweetheart, I want you to look for the sticks. Now, in that field, imagine there are sticks and there are stones. Now, after we walk through that field, and I've told you to look for sticks, what will you find? She's like, well, I'll find sticks because that's what you told me to look for. She was like, well, imagine the sticks are the good things that you have at school. And imagine the stones are the bad things. Now, if you go tomorrow and you're only looking for stones, guess what you'll find? She's like, I'd only find the stones, the bad things. She's like, but what if you go tomorrow and you determine to look for sticks and for the good things? She's like, tomorrow I want you to look for sticks. And sure enough, Ella ended up having one of her best days in recent history at school because Jenny had the wisdom to step into her life and say, sweetheart, what you look for, you will find. And this is what Gideon's doing. He's being grateful in the midst of a circumstance. And I love it, right? Notice, Gideon is in the exact same place that was marking his fear. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. He's in the exact same circumstances. Nothing has changed. And yet, what does he do? He steps out of fear into this frame of thankfulness or gratitude. Because gratitude actually will shift the perspective of what you see going on around you. This week, I had it happen to me. I was driving out of Legacy Place, and my car started sputtering, and I realized I'm not going to make it anywhere. And so I have a whip into a parking spot, and my car is done. So I have to call a tow truck to get my car picked up to take in somewhere to, to be kind of nurtured back to life and me be charged a lot. And, um, and I'm sitting there um, waiting on the tow truck guy, and, and there's just been a lot of different pressures throughout the week. And I'd realized in that moment, I'd started to pray about my car being broke down. And it was like something in me checked me. It was like, this is the first time you talked about your car with any kind of sense. Like, it was like, in my conversation with God, this was like the first time I brought my car up. And I'm like, God, I am so sorry. This car, now this car is old. In fact, it would probably be graduating high school next year if it was born. Um, but this car has lasted me a long time. And it is traveled thousands upon thousands of miles and I've never even thought about it I get in it I start it I get out and I walk away from it and I get in it, and I do it day after day after day after day and it's never failed me and the first time I notice it is when it doesn't work and I was like man that's a horrible frame and and so I just sat in my car 
for a few minutes. And I was just like, God, thank you for this car. I am so grateful for my 2003 Buick LeSaver. She has led me a long way. And that she always works when I get in it. And, and this is the first time in recent history that I can remember her not starting. And I'm sorry I haven't told you thank you. Because this car has been really faithful to me and I just haven't even paid attention to it. And you know what? The rest of the day, I was okay. I wasn't concerned about my car. I wasn't concerned about the repercussions of what it was going to cost. I was like, you know what? I'm really grateful for this car. In fact, my wife's like, don't you think you should, like, start to imagine replacing it? And I was like, never. <laughs> I was, like, committed to this thing now because I'm like, this thing has led me. It's watched out for me. It's a good car. And that simple act of being grateful shifted my perspective. And this is what we see Gideon do two different times in chapter 6 and chapter 7. He goes back to God with this perspective of gratitude, and that shifts his thought structures. Another thing that we see Gideon do actually happens right after the grateful piece. In verses 25 and um, through 27, there's a section in chapter 6 where Gideon is given an assignment. Gideon has been told, you're a mighty warrior. Go free your people from the Midianites, this great, powerful army. But before he goes and battles the most powerful army in its day, God gives him another assignment. He says, Gideon, I want you to go and do this other thing for me first, this small thing. Um, without getting into too much detail, because there's a lot of history and culture wrapped around it, oftentimes back in those days, there was a, a, um, ancient societies, because there wasn't Wegmans or Walmart, or Amazon, there was always this underlying constant concern about where's our food coming from next. There was always a fear of crops not growing in this next season because there wasn't a pantry. If your crops didn't grow, there was no backup plan to that. And so because of that, one of the tendencies in ancient civilizations especially was that they worshipped fertility gods. Um, you have to realize that Judaism was was completely revolutionary in it, the ancient civilizations because it was the first, like, monotheistic kind of single God faith. Most people in that time in the world believed in a whole group of gods. It was gods for everything. And one of them was the fertility gods. And fertility gods were the ones that you worshipped in order to make sure your crops grew, in order to make sure that your livestock reproduced and grew healthy. And so this was a constant struggle in ancient civilizations. This was almost, in every ancient civilization, there was always some type of fertility god. And in this region, there was a fertility, a fertility god, um, uh, this powerful group of Baal and Asherah. And that, that's what's alluded to in this passage, is that they, they worship these kind of fake notions of gods, because of their concern for life. And so God directs Gideon, go tear, go tear it down. Go tear down the altar they have set up. And Gideon goes and tears down the altar. And, and in fact, Gideon has a couple little assignments like this on the way from him becoming a warrior from that path of being a wimp. Now this is important because what it's illustrating is the second principle that's at play. Where if you understand and unpack and go beneath the surface, you realize that these commonalities are all pointing to this second powerful way of trading out your thoughts called traction and action, 
or traction, through action. That there is something about doing it, of taking a step, even with some of the underlying concerns and beliefs kind of lurking underneath the surface. That action is a powerful thing. And in fact, this is something that I think we've all experienced before, right? Especially I watched this play out with my toddler and my, my wife watched this play out with me when she married me. That oftentimes she would cook something or we would present something to Ella and it was, I don't like it. And then what do you have to do? We have a rule in our house. You have to give a no thank you bite. And so the first time ice cream was presented to my daughter, she didn't like it. She never tried it, but she determined beforehand she didn't like it. That was her belief. I don't like it. And Jenny was like, try it. And that little action of trying ice cream changed my daughter's life, and it became the third essential food group in our family. You see, and that's a silly notion, but we've all experienced how our behavior, how choosing to do something, even when we don't want to do something, actually has the power to affect indirectly the beliefs that we have. That the way that some of you have worked through your fears has been through the actions that you've taken in spite of those fears. I have a deep traumatic um, phobia around bees. When I was about 10 years old, I was attacked by about 40 of them, right? I will not get into gruesome detail what that attack looked like because you will not sleep tonight if I describe what I experienced. But needless to say that this fear deeply affected me, which to embarrassingly so. On my honeymoon with my wife, as we were walking in into the honeymoon cottage, the second day of being married, a bee flew by and I pushed her into the bushes to run into the house. Because I was like, she can handle it, I can't. It's, it's sad. I would, I, I would abandon my daughter and my wife if a bee showed up. And so one of the things that I had to start to do, this is something I still do, in fact, when I get around a bee today, I still believe they're the most terrifying creatures on planet Earth because those images are forever burned in my mind. I, when a bee flies, I will stand still. I will take deep breaths. And I will just wait. I won't flee. I won't sacrifice my wife to, to the idol of the bee. I, I, I don't run. I just wait for a second because I'm choosing a behavior that's speaking to this underlying belief. And over time, what has happened is that I've had a decrease with anxiety when I get around a bee. And it's, it's crazy, but I've seen this transform me because it used to be I would have pushed you all <laughs> into that bush to get away. And for some of you, it may not be a bee. It may be some other things in your life. But we, we've all experienced the subtlety of taking an action that can actually transform the belief underneath the surface. But there's actually a third thing that's at play in this process too. And this is the one that often we see God modeling for Gideon. It's the most powerful one, in fact. But Gideon didn't know it yet, and so God's teaching it through him through the course of a conversation. When we first see Gideon, right, in the wine press, and he's threshing like a coward, God shows up and he says, 
hey, mighty warrior. Then they have a conversation. Well, I'm the, the wimpiest of the wimp. If you knew me, you'd know my family are a bunch of chickens, and I'm the biggest chicken in a family of chickens that's part of a tribe of a bunch of chickens. You, don't, you just don't know. Like, I've got these thoughts, and they're so true. And yet what God does throughout chapter 6 and chapter 7, including allowing him even to go down, right, in chapter 7, you'll notice God does this in a different way, where he says, um, go up and go to the camp. Right In verse 29, he says, if you're afraid to attack, which Gideon was, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Malachites, and the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Imagine walking into a modern army's camp and you see tanks and military jets everywhere this is what it would have felt like to be Gideon this is the equivalent it's overwhelming everything about that circumstance looks like it's already been lost this is incredibly defeating and yet what happens Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend his dream I had a dream he was saying a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing, nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped this gratitude, thankfulness again. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he called up, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. What God is doing through the voices of others and through his own voice in chapter 6 and conversation, as he's teaching Gideon that you don't just have to listen to your thoughts, you can talk back to them too. Um, there is a man named Dr. James Gills, and he has a distinct honor of being the only person in human history to complete six double Ironman triathlons. Now, maybe you're like me when you came across that factoid, and you don't know what a double Ironman is. Let me tell you what a regular Ironman is. Regular Ironman, um, Ironman is you swim a little over two miles, you bike 112 miles, and then you run a full marathon. That's an Ironman. It's uh, basically around 140.6 miles between all three. A double Ironman is exactly like it sounds. You do double it. You swim for four miles, you bike for 224 miles, and you run the equivalent of 50-plus miles. And you have to do it within 36 hours to, to actually be qualified as a double Ironman. He's done it six times. The sixth time he did it was when he was 59 years old. It's extraordinary. And yet James, John Gordon, um, who's a famous author, when he was interviewing him, he said what he heard Dr. Gill said completely opened his eyes. He said, um, how do you do it? And this is how Dr. Gills responded. He said, I've learned to talk to myself instead of listening to myself. If I listen to myself, I hear all the doubts, the fears, and the complaints of why I can't finish the race. If I talk to myself, I can feed myself with the words I need 
to keep moving forward. This very subtle but significant tweak is that this man learned the power of talking back to his thoughts. Many of us fall into the trap of merely listening to our thoughts, merely absorbing what they say, absorbing the emotions that flood through our hearts and minds, and many of us never realize that we can actually talk back to the thoughts that we have. And it's enabled this man to do what no person has been able to do before. And unless you think he's a professional athlete, he's actually an eye surgeon. Who in the process of learning how to do this, this has transformed his life. He is the second most requested author in the prison system in the U.S. Because of the books that he's written. The most requested book is the Bible. The second most requested author is him. He's pioneered eye surgeries around cataracts that's named after him. This man has accomplished incredible things, and he boils it down to the ability to talk back to himself with truth instead of just listening with lies. And I think this is a really important thing, but the reality is, is that as easy as these three steps sound, right? that in the course of 27 minutes, I've given you how to tune into your thoughts and how to trade out your thoughts by thankfulness and gratitude and by traction and action of kind of gaining movement in that area and, and talking back as easy as that sounds the reality is that we struggle Gideon takes two chapters to experience the transformation and it's because oftentimes what happens is when we start this process we we encounter some barriers one of those barriers is something that you actually see Gideon do if you read the story of Gideon, what you'll notice is Gideon has this tendency. Gideon will take two steps forward and then one step back. He'll take two steps forward and then one step back. And so what will happen is as you start to practice this, you will find yourself having two steps forward and then one step back. And the human tendency is not to celebrate the two steps the human tendency is to fix on the one step back. Well, I was starting to really press into that addiction because I realized it doesn't have to define me anymore. But this week I struggled. It's like you went three days. Like, celebrate the two steps. Because two minus one is still one step forward. And Gideon actually has this play out multiple times. He's so God tells him, go tear down the altar. What does Gideon do? He tears it down at night so no one sees him. Because why? He's a chicken. But he's a chicken doing a courageous thing. Two steps forward, one step back. Gideon calls an army, two steps forward, has to shrink the army, one step back. He's in this constant. Two steps forward, I'm gonna, I've, I've mustered a force, I'm ready to go attack. One step back, I'm afraid to attack. Two steps forward, one step back. And what happens when we start to fixate on the one step back is the other barrier that we face is our emotions. Discouragement. And you start to feel those old feelings. So you take two steps forward in your marriage. And then you have an argument. And you're like, I knew this wasn't going to work. I knew there was no hope for him. I knew she just wouldn't listen when I tried to bring up something. So 
one step back. And that emotion starts to flood and that discouragement starts to creep in because you, you knew it all along. Your mom always told you you were worthless. People always told you you were a nobody. People, well, he said when he left you, you'll always be alone. And now you feel it again. You were, trying to, you were trying to take two steps forward, but now you feel the weight of that one step back. You feel all of that again. And it starts to lead you to this place of defeat and discouragement and depression. And you're willing to surrender, wave the white flag, and walk off. Why? Because it's a barrier that you and I will face when we start to challenge the way we think. Unless, I think, we realize that there is something at play in this story that is really, truly the most powerful of all. You see, they're called beliefs because we believe them. When you have a belief, implied in that word is that you believe it. And this is actually what's really underneath the surface of this entire storyline. What God is constantly engaging Gideon with is this realization that Gideon, you have some beliefs that you've chosen to believe. Another way of saying the word belief is trust. Belief and trust in the Bible are actually synonymous with each other. It's the same thing. You see, what happens, the reason we fall into this barrier, we fall into this trap, is that for many of us, the way we quantify trustworthy or belief is our sincerity around it and the strong emotion that comes with it. Well, I know that I'm worthless. I know that our marriage will always feel this way, that it will always be like this, that I'll never be able to love again or I'll always be alone. We feel that. It's sincere. We sincerely believe it. Or the strong emotion. Like, I don't have to tell you but oftentimes we have to be reminded emotions are powerful. But they're not always true. But we trust them like they are. We give in to them as if they're the final word. As if they have the final say. And even last week, and part of how I closed the message is I just shared my journey last year and said, here's how I navigated what I was walking through and I'm telling you, last year, the emotions were powerful. We were talking about dealing with our infertility struggles. It ripped my heart out every single night to lay in the bed with my little girl who was praying for twins. And to know that I'm the reason we can't have a baby. And to hear it every single night. And to look at my wife and to look at my little girl and to know I can't give them what they both desperately want. That ripped my heart out. And that was a feeling that never left. It was so huge. And it would walk in and it would just punch me in the face. And I would feel it so deeply. 
And I understand that some of you are so, so convinced. You're so sincere. And the belief is so strong that that addiction will always mark your life. Or that you will always be in a place of singleness. Or that that marriage will be destroyed. I understand that that weight and that pain can feel so heavy that it can never be defeated. But I am telling you that what Gideon does in this story is the power, is the secret that transforms his journey. And that he started to redirect his trust. He stops trusting in his emotions. He stops trusting in his circumstances. And he slowly begins to transition his trust to the character and the power of God. He begins to make this turn. And you can trace it. If, if you go and you read 6 and 7, what you will find is at the very beginning of the story, there's an invitation from Gideon, from God, to say, trust me, Gideon. The circumstances do not change. The emotions around those circumstances are still there. The enemy is even larger in chapter 7 than it was in chapter 6 because the Midianites come to defeat them. Everything is even ramped up. And yet Gideon is now on the edge of the camp with a small army of people ready to run in with musical instruments to defeat the most powerful military force on planet Earth. Why? Because he started to trust in something bigger and something greater and something stronger. And that that trust, that choice of who you're going to trust, you or maybe a God above you who speaks truth about you. And what Gideon doesn't have is Gideon doesn't have the full picture. He just knows it's God. But we're 3,000 plus years removed and we've got a little bit more insight than what Gideon had. We know that God stepped on the planet Earth and his name was Jesus. And that he demonstrates and he answers this fundamental question that for thousands of years people have wrestled with. Who and what is God like? And what does Jesus do when he gets here? He, he spends time with the people that people were convinced God wouldn't have spent time with. He loves the people that the religious people were convinced God wouldn't love. And then he does something shocking. He, instead of becoming this political leader, this kind of territorial leader, he becomes a sacrificial leader. And he surrenders who he is and his perfection to cover our imperfections so that we can begin the journey of becoming his. But Gideon trusted God just with a little and that today we're in a place where we can begin to explore faith and engage this question of who and what is God alike. And I believe even have a deeper trust. Because to be real, I believe that my God, Jesus, when all the world thought they had won and crucified him, he walked out of the grave three days later. That when everything looked hopeless, he brought hope. When death had looked like it won, he had brought life and resurrection. 
It's that trust in who he is and what he has done for me and how he's transformed me that allowed me every single night with my wife and with my daughter to not just feel the emotional punch in my gut of knowing what I could not give to them, but to continue to stand in faith, trusting that God was bigger than our circumstances, that he was greater than even the physical things that were true about me, that he had a power and ability that if he didn't and he didn't if, if it didn't come through in the way of a physical child, that he would break, break through in other ways too. And it was why every single night, it wasn't just my daughter that prayed for twins. It was me too. Because I recognize that if I'm going to ultimately supercharge the way I speak back to my thoughts, that ultimately the most powerful thing that I will do depends on what I say to them. And what I needed was something a little bit more than some pithy statements like, well, gosh darn it, people like you. I needed something a little bit more than an SNL skit. I need some, some scriptural truth that speaks and brings light even in the midst of darkness. And that last year, what enabled me to navigate all the different challenges that we walked through was this unabiding, this constant committing to trusting him no matter what which is why even in the midst of all that we walk through I never lost hope and I never stopped moving and I don't know how it all works but it's one of the reasons I believe that when you walk by preschool today if you see my wife you'll see that she's pregnant and that Is because I believe, I trusted something, someone who was bigger and who was greater. And it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always turn out to a good ending. But I know that the one who is in writing, the one who is writing my ending is good. And on August 14th, I'll get to hold the little baby boy that came from a prayer, that came from a trust, that came from us standing our ground and saying to the thoughts inside of our head and our heart that even if no one ever comes, I believe you're still good. I believe you are still great. I believe you are stronger. I believe you are a one who brings dead things back to life, that you are mighty, that you are worthy, that you are powerful. And some of you need to hear that today, not because you need to celebrate what God has done in my life, but so that you can start to trust what He can do in your life too. Because maybe it's not a baby. Maybe it's your marriage. Or maybe it's the insecurities or the eating disorder or the loneliness or the pain or the anxiety. But for some of us today, you need to hear what God has done in my story so that you can begin to speak it into your story. Because we do serve a mighty God. And that when you take these three principles and that you begin to practice them, you begin to be grateful and thankful. And you begin to put traction to it. And you begin to talk back in truth. What will start to happen is you will start to move from that place that has always defined your life. 
And through the gospel, through the grace, through the love and the mercy of Jesus, you will start to move to a place and a space you never dreamed you could be. Because he's still today doing miracles. And that he's still today bringing back dead things. And bringing hope. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.